Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Today, we're joined by Jim O'Shaughnessy. He is an elder statesman on financial Twitter, but more importantly, he's the principal, chairman, and co-chief investment officer and portfolio manager of O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. He's also a four-time author, including the seminal work, What Works on Wall Street. Jim, welcome aboard. Well, thanks for having me, Fraser. I'm delighted to be here. Well, it's a treat for me. I've been following you on Twitter for a while now, and you're one of the major voices of reason on a chaotic platform. <laughs> it's my niche. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So what we're going to talk a little bit about today, I know you get a lot of questions about your investing style and how you manage assets and things like that. But one thing that I don't think people know about and that I'm interested in is how you grew your business and how you think about transitioning your business to the next generation and running it. Once you think about retiring, which given your energy and the way you go about things, that's probably going to be in about 55 years or so. But at the same time, as you and I both know, there are lots of factors to consider both with the business and the people that you employ and your customers, et cetera, to make sure that you have a tidy transition. And I thought it would be interesting to hear a little bit about that from you. Sure. O'Shaughnessy Asset Management was a group spun out of Bear Stearns, where I had been the director of systematic equity for several years. We came to a very amicable agreement with our friends at Bear. Some people might snicker at that, but it's actually true. We took a lot of time because people don't really understand that Wall Street is kind of a small place and you really don't want to burn any bridges. And so we spent a lot of time getting that negotiated. And then unfortunately for Bear Stearns, we had the financial crisis and it kind of looked like we knew ahead of time. We certainly did not know ahead of time. It was just pure dumb luck. O'Shaughnessy Asset Management is our primary business is long world equities using entirely quantitative investment methodologies to select securities. So basically, when people say, well, what's a normal day like at OSAM? If a normal day at a traditional shop is people talking to the CEO and trying to calculate discounted cash flows and checking on competitors, et cetera, our team's normal day is spent doing quantitative research. We take that very, very seriously. It's something that I believe must be continual because we can never stop learning. Things evolve. So if you looked at our models when we formed OSAM in 07, you looked at them today, you'd see foundationally they're the same. In terms of the underlying definitions of factors, the groups of factors, et cetera, I think we've gotten significantly better through our research at getting to the real kind of numbers that are going to have the highest chance for us to succeed. In addition to long world equities, mostly U.S., I should say, we are a sub-advisor to the Royal Bank of Canada, the asset management arm up there, where we run portfolios, mutual funds under the O'Shaughnessy Funds name. And I'm delighted to say that's been a partnership that we have had since 1998, I believe. Wonderful, wonderful people. 
We always say, even though the people have turned over, the CEO is much different now than it was in 97 when we struck the deal. Same kind of people. They're a delight to work with. They're people of their word. I often say that if Harvard wants to do a case study on a successful partnership, they should look at that because it's one of those things where everyone performs like they say they're going to perform. Well, and that sounds like an interesting example as you look toward your organization. You've got a nice experience from a business partner as to how things not only should run currently, but how you want them to look culturally going forward so that you're building, you know, you're not just building the blueprint for the house, but you're building the house. And then as things change and modify, you're able to sort of adapt to different conditions. Absolutely. It's always been great for us to have the resources of a much larger organization that we can just ping. And we say, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? And they've been very, very helpful in that regard. Disclosure, they also own 10% of OSAM. But being just a straight, plain vanilla, long equity asset manager was never, even in my first iteration of this, which was O'Shaughnessy Capital Management back in 1987, I always wanted to have a firm that offered not just long equities, but other types of things opportunistically as we found them. I'd like to tell you about two. The first is what we call canvas. And there's a great Thoreau quote that says, the world is but a canvas for your imagination. And essentially, that's what canvas is, but for asset management. My son essentially came up with this idea after becoming CEO and taking a look at what I had tried to do, uh, something very similar with a company called Netfolio in 1999, which was kind of the first online investment advisor. But I've always been a tech, I love technology. So when we spun out and we had the global financial crisis, I looked at my people and I said, well, my guess is we're probably not going to sell too many long-only equity portfolios over the next couple of years. Let's retain clients, but let's spend this time to build the absolute best technology that we can. And we did. I still remember the day my son came into my office and he's like, Dad, we built the Death Star to kill a mouse. And by that he meant, as you might imagine, we have a ton of data that is pretty expensive from a variety of data providers, but that's not all we have. We have hooks into all the custodians, we have very sophisticated software for cleaning data, et cetera. And he said, I like this idea of letting advisors, because right now we work exclusively with financial advisors, right? right? The RIA community and, and others, right? Correct, yes. And what we saw coming was a desire for not only flexibility, but for the advisor to fully express their clients' desires, what they like, what they didn't like. And frankly, in packaged products, you really can't do that. Not really. I was going to say, one of the interesting things about it, and I ran through the Canvas demo in a past life and I've sort of really focused on it, it really takes that behavioral finance component of customization of the client experience and translates it to the implementation of investment advice. That to me is what works. If you're a Google employee and you've got 90% of your net worth in the stock, you don't want to see Google show up in your investment implementation. And when you get packaged materials, essentially, 
you're going to get that overlap whether you want it or not. Or if you're afraid of international stocks and that's part of your behavioral hardwiring and it's going to take a long time for your financial advisor to quote unquote undo that, that's the way to step in and customize what's happening in a way that on the desktop kind of makes it work. To me, what I liked about it was the idea that it's sort of, for lack of a blunt term, sort of active management 2.0. You know, there's sort of active management across the index and sort of defeating the index to the extent you can on its own merits. But then there's applying active management to the individual and their behavioral finance attributes. No question. And if you ever need another job, please give me a call. <laughs> you do a very good job describing that. Yeah, essentially what we wanted to provide advisors with was a tool, as you say, that they could address the concentrated stock issue. Packaged products can't do that. Address tax alpha. You can consistently over a market cycle generate just through tax management. You can generate about 70 basis points of actual return for the client. Now, that's an estimate, and it will be different with every client. Sector immunization. So let's stay with the Google employee. Let's say that he's an active investor in other tech ventures, or she. She might come in and say, you know what? No exposure to the tech sector. I've got that covered over here. We can do that for them. We can also do direct indexing in a way that allows you to throw out stocks that you really don't like or add stocks you love. We will tell you what the back-tested implications of that would be. So we don't want you going in blind and we don't want you saying, hey, yeah, I want this passel of penny stocks in there as well. But we have the ability to show you everything that you might be thinking about ahead of time and then, as you say, investment management 2.0 down to customization. ESG is a breeze with the Canvas platform. And importantly, it's ESG your way, not our way. It isn't what Jim O'Shaughnessy or Patrick O'Shaughnessy thinks ESG should be. It's what you think ESG should be. For example, so I have two daughters, a wife I love very much, and I grew up with four sisters. Well, guess what? I would like to see more women in C-suites or on boards. And because of the programs that we have available to us, a list didn't exist about, you know, I don't know, I think we did this 10 months ago, but one didn't exist. And we told one of our machine learning guys, hey, we need a list showing two or more women in C-suites are on the board. When do you need that by? Well, when do you think you can have it for us? He goes, this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> so literally you can come in and drill down on any of your passions or your bugaboos. Everyone is different. Everyone has different things that they're passionate about. So we try to remain absolutely neutral because if you've followed some of the other things that I write about on Twitter, I, I'm obsessed with words and labels and some people read them one way and other people read them another way. And sometimes that gets lost in translation. Here, if you want a specific portfolio that even if it looks odd to us, means something to you, we can pretty much effectuate that in the portfolio that we designed for you. So we think we're trying to go pretty slowly with Canvas because another thing, as Patrick, as the sort of king of financial podcasting, is access to a ton of the brightest minds. 
And some of the best advice we got was from those minds saying, pick 10 great clients originally, and then don't take any more until you've made those 10 absolutely delighted. Boy, has that worked well. Great advice. It reduces the data flow of a huge release and having 50% of the people who are mad at everything coming at you. And at the same time, it's enough of a sample that you aren't basing your whole company on one person's experience or two people's experience that may not scale, essentially. Exactly. And we also picked very different style advisors for the tent. We wanted to get input from as many different kind of viewpoints, if you will, that we find in asset management. But it also led to an initiative that we have unveiled just a bit ago, which is a venture capital arm called Positive Sum. That had its own box on my first little outline of what I wanted an asset management company to look like. But I didn't want to just do one. I wanted to wait for an opportunity to present itself where we could actually add significant value through relationships, through insights, et cetera. And Patrick with Invest Like the Best and his other endeavors has put together an unbelievable group of not only VCs, but business people, CEOs, founders, et cetera. And we've gotten a unique insight into what we think, and obviously venture capital is risky, everyone knows that, but we're going to be doing mostly a round style investing. And importantly, we have been doing it through O'Shaughnessy Family Partners, Patrick and myself with our colleagues doing the analysis since 07. So we're not new at this. We've been doing it with our own money. We're putting our own money in positive sum, because another one of our beliefs is we should be pari passu with you. I mean, you might have less money in than we do or more money than we do, but we want exposure not only to the long only portfolios, but to anything we offer. We are super excited about the opportunities with positive sum because the network effect there is really, really quite strong. That's another thing that we're doing right now. The third thing would be we're learning a lot, and VC fits into this, but we're learning a lot more about private markets because private markets are becoming more and more important. So for right now, we've done that through an investment with a guy by the name of Brent Bishore, which is private equity, but it's not private equity. It's so much so not private equity. We called it, or he called it, permanent equity. Our goals are very different than a traditional private equity. They are to work with founders. They are to keep them around. And essentially what we're looking for is a collection of businesses private that just throw off a tremendous amount of cash flow that gets returned to the investors on an annual basis. So in an era with negative interest rates, we think things like that might be very interesting to the group of investors that we serve. So as we're sort of canvassing, not to sort of throw the pun out there too quickly, but the overall landscape of your holdings and the business itself, you've got Patrick involved. You've got an interesting sort of subset too, which I want to focus on a little bit too, which reminds me a lot of Josh Brown and Barry Ritholtz's ideas about sort of having a media component, which helps fuel 
not only the sales funnel, but the information funnel upon which you make decisions, which my guess is, is that you had that in the back of your mind somewhere as your career developed, but you wanted it implemented into your business overall. And then through Patrick and maybe through other people, you're sort of taking these ideas in and you've got the people to implement it beyond that, which you can do managing portfolios. Good analysis or is it, am I strained a little bit? Actually, a very good analysis. I joke that you can have the absolute best investment process in the world. And if nobody knows who you are and nobody knows what you're saying, nobody's going to give you any money. So if you watched my career, I did a tremendous amount of traditional media in the late 1990s, early 2000s, when Mark Haynes was still alive. I co-hosted Squawk with him almost every other week. You had three hours back then, and you could get into really in-depth conversations. And I did a lot of print media. I did a lot of, in addition to CNBC, we would do Bloomberg, we would do all that sort of thing. So we always understood the importance of having a voice. In addition to having a voice, you get to hear good feedback that sometimes is critical. You get to hear people say, I really liked your idea about that, but I kind of think you're off base or off sides on this one. What do you say about that? And through that kind of constant iteration, our motto at the firm is learn, build, share, repeat. So it's a continual circle. And you can't get feedback without the share component. Before What Works on Wall Street was published, I had an offer from a very large investment bank to, they wanted to buy my company, but their provision was, I may not publish what works on Wall Street. They wanted it to be proprietary. It ended up being a no-go. And one of the main reasons for that was, I passionately believe that you can have the best process in the world, and you're still going to have 80% of the people looking at you and saying, you're an idiot. I I don't want to do that. (laughs) And so I believe passionately in the power of ideas and the power to create better and better processes and better and better portfolio techniques, et cetera, better and better companies through this ongoing process of sort of learning in public. You're at risk when you do that because people might be uncharitable. You have to have thick skin, let's put it that way. And I've been doing this for a long, long time. And I've gone from genius to idiot, genius to idiot, so many times that it simply doesn't bother me anymore. It's part of the market cycle. And so you have to have a thick skin. But if you do, the feedback is essential and amazing. And you also get access to a group of people, Patrick in particular, with Invest Like the Best, but also me with Infinite Loops. We have two very different audiences and want different things from the podcasts. But I'm a big believer, the more interesting people you talk to, guess what? You're going to learn more and more interesting things and a lot more when you're not talking to anybody. Oh, and to be cavalier, you become more interesting yourself. All of those ideas just, they fire different synapses and antennae. I think it creates big pockets of creativity that fuel the next thing. My sort of hypothesis is that through your media exposure early on, in addition to what you were doing, that's what you're able to see around the corner a little bit and say, when 2008 happens, you're saying, you know what, we've got to build another mousetrap here because this game may be over and quantitative analysis 
we may not be able to compete with Jim Simons and the Wang supercomputer and the Cray over here and all that stuff. But we've got to find something else. That to me is where, you know, in your podcast, you call it infinite loops. That's how you break them is to bring other people on and listen like the Borg, assimilate all of that and then make it your own and move forward. Absolutely. You've nailed it. We are always searching for new and better ideas. We find that you've got to be what I would call radically open-minded. And by that, I've done some threads on Twitter. There's another thing. I did all traditional media for the majority of my career. And then I started noticing something. I started noticing that social media was becoming more and more important Primarily, I think, and I'm specifically talking about Twitter here, it is a two-way conversation. It is not one-to-many. It is often one-to-one, one-to-many, or many-to-one. I still believe, and people tease me about this because there's a lot of nonsense on Twitter, but I believe that Twitter has the capability of being the world's first successful distributed intelligence network. And if you curate your feed, well, and you get the right people engaged in the conversation, my word, I mean, I have learned, for example, we have a research partner program, and we have what I would call one of the brightest minds working in finance today as a research partner. And guess what? He's anonymous on Twitter, and he doesn't work in finance. And yet we vet all of his papers and their gold. We have the opportunity through these connections that we set up, both through podcasts and through Twitter and other social media, to the top of our funnel is huge, but we're selective So, because we can be. I'll give another example. So I've been toying with some hypotheses about using large data sets and machine learning to identify things that traditional quant can't identify. And we have a couple of machine learning experts, also as research assistants, who literally we could not hire. They retired from huge tech companies. They're young people. <laughs> they can only coach their kids' soccer team for so long. And the thing that I find about these people that is very similar is they're voraciously curious. And when you get that kind of mind and say, hey, you want to check out this data set? And they see this endless series of data, they get very, very excited. So we've been able to understand the evolution, or at least what we look at as the evolution of media and dealing with other experts, with the public, with clients, with our employees through these methodologies. And the results have been nothing short of staggering to me, at least. Jesse Livermore would be the name of our writer who, that's his pseudonym. But we've had PhDs in quantitative economics and finance say, you got to tell us who this guy is. <laughs> <laughs> and, Nothing wrong with your anonymous secret weapon in the back, right? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we definitely believe that the world is changing. We believe that we want to be a leader in that change as opposed to a, that isn't the way it's done here, but you can't have any sacred cows if you want to be that. So you can't have me saying, but no, you've always got to use this factor. No, no, you don't. No, Jeff Bezos is looking for your sacred cow. 
to skewer and you hold on to it too long and you just set yourself up for the car accident that you can't see. Without a doubt, without a doubt. I was taught something by my grandfather. I was the youngest grandchild or grandson. I had a cousin who was the youngest granddaughter, a few months younger than I was. But I had the good fortune of living in the same town as he. And he was a very successful man. And one of the first things that he taught me about was this thing he called premeditation. You could kind of say it's a mind Monte Carlo system in which you think about, okay, so what do I want? And then you vector out everything you can think of and you write it down. I find that very important, the writing aspect. Because if you can't clearly express yourself in writing, you don't know what you think. That's a rather out there opinion, but I just believe it. Again, for books, I believed very deeply in that if I had some information that I thought could level the playing field, let's learn, let's build that out. So what works on Wall Street now in its fourth edition, let's share the number of papers, the number of people who have called me with good advice on, hey, did you ever think about doing it this way? Who had read What Works on Wall Street, you just open up the tent. And as long as you are incredibly open-minded, which a lot of people unfortunately are not, and that's why I always write about a lot, the most successful people I've ever met in my life, with just a few exceptions, have had not big egos. They have been very, very, if anything, they were just curious. They were almost like my six-year-old grandson. Why, Papa? Why, Papa? Why, Papa? (laughs) And I love it. And I just love learning when you're like that. Like finds like. Those are the kind of people that I have the great privilege and happy fortune to deal with. I hate to use ages in a public forum. That's the fastest way to uh, get a drink in your face or get your eye poked out. But you're boomer. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) But you're 60 now. And as you look at your business and you look at the values and I hate to call it methodologies, but the concepts that help build it and that you've instilled in Patrick and your employees. How do you look at the business now? You've got to feel good about where it is. You have to feel really good about its trajectory and the different things that you're trying. And it sounds like your energy comes through. It sounds like it's a great encapsulation of what's inside. How did you get to that point in terms of including Patrick in it? And maybe talk a little bit about his development and how he came on board and how that worked with the rest of the family. Because in my world... There are many extremely successful businesses that maybe are at this stage that you're in right now, but the family dynamic or the lack of communication between siblings or baggage or different issues out there create significant roadblocks. And it sounds like you've got some of that figured out. I know nothing's perfect, but how did you get to that point and how did you sort of either build the team around you to help you push through the values and the guiding principles? How did you communicate that to the people around you, not just your family, but your employees, your vendors, your customers, et cetera, so that they felt good about the transition that you feel so good about? Sure. So I had the great good fortune of growing up in a family business. My grandfather was very successful in the oil business, did very, very well. I'm in incredibly proud of him. He gave away 95% of his net worth during his own lifetime. He was doing what Buffett and Gates are doing, but he was doing it about 60 years ago. But I was pressured 
by my uncle, who I loved and he loved me, to work for the family business. And he wasn't subtle about it. And I was very patient with him and he was very patient with me, to be fair. And I finally convinced him that the oil business was just something I was not interested in, but I was super interested in the stock market and the investment world. And finally, I got a smile out of him at dinner and he's like, well, you are persistent. And so my guess is you're going to do well in that other world. But one of the things that taught me was that I was never going to even suggest as my children were growing up that they should show an interest in what I did for a living. I did that because I had seen other cousins who weren't as persistent as me end up working for the family business, not being terribly happy about it. And I just thought, well, I was a very lucky guy to learn this lesson early. Literally, I don't think Patrick read What Works on Wall Street until he was out of college, to be honest. But he graduated from Notre Dame with a degree in philosophy. And a lot of people will kind of snicker at that. But not me. I think it's one of the best degrees you could have if you want to be a good thinker. The mark of intelligence housed two different types of thought over around the same concept at the same time. And to be able to wrestle with both sides of them without injuring yourself. <laughs> exactly. And I was a huge fan of philosophy and had read a lot of it, even though my degree is in economics. I love history. I love philosophy. And so we would have great conversations. Anyway, he came to me after graduating and said, hey, could I be an intern at OSAP? And I'm like, sure. Do you want to be? And he goes, yeah, I read what works. I read how to retire rich. I'm pretty interested in this. And I'm like, okay, sure. You can be an intern, but here's the deal. You are not going to report to me. You're going to report to this person who was like several layers removed from me. And you have an expiration date, which is January of next year. And he was deal. And so about four weeks into his internship, the guy he was working for was the director of research. And he came in to my office and said, hey, Jim, yeah. I think Patrick is the only intern we're not paying. And I think the only reason we're not paying him is because he's your son. And he goes, I think he's super valuable. And I really think that you need to pay him. And I was like, okay. So we paid him. Go forward another month and a half, close to two months, getting closer to that January deadline. The president of my company, Chris Loveless, came in with the director of research, sat down and said, Jim, we have to hire Patrick. <laughs> and I'm like, Okay, well, tell me why. And he goes, because we don't know what it is. It might be genes, but this guy, he just gets quant. He just totally gets it and can articulate it in a manner that is amazing. So we hired him. But note, the advice came from my colleagues. It was not me saying we were going to hire Patrick. It was quite the opposite. And I did that intentionally because I wanted my colleagues to be his champion. I didn't want to be his champion. I was delighted that he was interested in the business, and I was delighted that he was as good at it as he was. But I felt with him being championed by his colleagues, bosses at the time, they would look at him in a very different manner than if I had simply installed him, because that would be anathema to my way of doing something. And then there was the great test. And the great test, I mentioned RBC earlier. 
So one of the things that's marvelous about the folks up at RBC is they're the stereotypical Canadian is very nice and polite. And they are, but they're also no bullshit. In other words, if somebody is not up to snuff, you're going to get the call and you're going to be told that this person is not up to snuff. And so there was a week-long presentation series that one of my senior guys was supposed to do, and he got ill. So I got a call from the president of RBC Asset Management. Now, this is several years into Patrick working with OSAM. And he goes, I think it's time for you to send Patrick up here. And I'm like, okay, knowing that that could be a very high-risk endeavor because they have very, very high standards at RBC. I was on pins and needles. I did not call Patrick or bug him. I left him alone. And the senior guy he was traveling with, and I didn't speak for the full week. It was killing me, but I I kept silent. <laughs> Sitting Indian style. And, oh, you know. no question. No <laughs> question. And so anyway, finally, when Patrick got back, I was like, well, so how'd it go? And Patrick looked at me and he goes, I think it went well. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> You'll find out quickly. I will. And so I called the folks up at RBC and the head of asset management said, I have two things to tell you, Jim. We thought he knocked the ball out of the park. And secondly, and this is not meant as an insult to you, but we want you to know how highly we think of him. We think when he matures and is at his best, he's going to be better than you at this. And to me, that was like... That's the best thing you can hear. Exactly. It was music to my ears. Concurrent with this going on, I was the chairman of the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center. We had 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 a situation where we had the same chairman for a long, long time. I love Chamber Music. I love Lincoln Center. But when asked whether I would succeed him, I was not reticent, but I said, okay, I will. But I have two conditions. The first is we have to have a succession plan in place before you announce that I'm the new chair. And the second thing is it's got to be a woman because, after all, Alice Tully was the first chair and the last female chair, which to me was absurd. And I said, oh, and final thing, I'm term limiting myself. Because if I can't accomplish in the next five to six years what you want me to accomplish, I've failed. And you'll want to replace me. And so everyone agreed. And we explained to the community, to our funders, to the musicians, to everyone who had a stake in the outcome of CMS remaining sort of the global leader in chamber music. Everyone thought that that was a great plan. And it led to other conversations with colleagues of mine, both at OSAM, but also on the board of CMS. And one fellow was a very high-ranking executive at a Fortune 500 company, and he was saying to me, man, if we would only do that, if we would only have that kind of clarity around who is going to succeed whom and why, that would be a great help. So at that time, I started thinking about Patrick as the next CEO. And I tested that with my president, who has been with me since 1997. I tested that with another colleague, my director of sales, who has been with me since 1997. Obviously, long-tenured 
I respect the hell out of both of these guys. Talked to my head trader. She was like, well, duh. But I really solicited their opinions. Honestly, with that back pocket information that I got from a highly reliable resource in RBC, it was agreed that I was going to accelerate naming Patrick CEO to January of 2018. You had it easy. (laughs) I did. I really did. Because another one of my core tenants is I'm really lazy. (laughs) Quick question. Did you take the idea to a kitchen cabinet sort of outside the business world? Did you know lawyers or friends who were entrepreneurs and things like that? Yes. Yes, I did to friends and lawyers in particular. But the lawyers I brought it to were good friends and had been for a long time. Right. Wide experience and wide experience. Had seen lots of seen so many of these things get screwed up. And so when we decided to accelerate his position as being elevated to CEO, we also decided that for the first six months, even though he was going to be the CEO in name, I was still going to be shadowing him, if you will. And Patrick and I are very, very lucky in that, in addition to loving one another, we are very similar in our outlooks for how to run a business, how to treat people. You had mentioned you were kind enough to send some questions in advance, which we've only covered a few, which I love, by the way, because I'm really good extemporaneous. And when you want to script me, I'm like, let it flow, man, because that's where the insight comes out. So anyway, one of the things that really was something that I passionately believe in and have all my life is I love young minds. And that isn't meant as any kind of discriminatory statement against guys like me who are 60, because I think I've got a pretty good mind too. But if you know history, if you know when mathematical breakthroughs were made, if you know when physics and physical things were made apparent, one of the things that you just can't get away from is that for the most part, these people had their best ideas when they were, let's call it under 45. And the enthusiasm, as well as the idea of we had lived through a paradigm shift. So as you mentioned, I'm 60. I was an early adopter. I had one of the first membership IDs at CompuServe. I had the much coveted two-digit was like 74113, comma, most of them had three or four digits, I had two. And that showed up, I was like one of the first guys. But their generation were true natives of this new digital environment. It's hard to translate that into perfect examples, but it's kind of like the fish who doesn't understand water because he's lived in water all of his life. He doesn't have to say, oh, What is this object, Dad? I don't understand it. It's part of them. And so the technology, the ability to manipulate code, all of those things were things that came very naturally to younger people. Now, I've seen your people working for me in their 50s, and they do great jobs. So we're not discriminating on age here. I don't want anyone to get that impression because I'd have to fire me, I guess. But the point is, I wanted to maximize the potential for Patrick to be able to do really interesting and sort of business-changing things sooner rather than later. 
what happens when the two of you disagree? Must happen. And have you disagreed on any major strategic issues? Or is it something where the two of you think so similarly in many ways, you kind of arrive at the same decision at the same time and it works? But I am interested in how the two of you resolve conflict to the extent it ever exists. Sure. So very low conflict relationship between Patrick and myself, primarily because that's the way I raised him. And people would say, hey, your kids all turned out great. What do you do? And I said, my wife and I talked about it at length, and we came up with a single line. The single line is, we want to raise great adults. And if you want to raise great adults, that precludes all sorts of behaviors that parents engage in all the time. It precludes me saying, because I'm your father and I said so. It precludes me from saying, because you live under my house and my rules. It encourages Patrick. I want, it comes to me, I want to do this. I think you shouldn't do that. Give me some reasons. If the reasons aren't good enough, I would say, go back and think of some more. And he would come back and have a very well-reasoned argument at a very young age. So that kind of morphed into the way we deal with one another now. So we have different skill sets. We're very simpatico in terms of vision, where we see things going. We couldn't agree more closely on that. I'm a little more theoretical than Patrick is. One of the things I've been working on right now is I've always said that markets are complex adaptive systems with feedback loops. The reason they work so well is that for the most part, they're heterogeneous. In other words, people have different opinions. You might sell me Apple and I'm buying Apple, but we could both be right. You could be selling it for a reason that makes sense. I could be buying it for a reason that makes sense. Markets clear that way and prices discovered. However, during certain periods in the market, usually in kind of a black swanny type way or a bubble or a bust, what happens are information cascades take over. We as human beings are very mimetic creatures. In other words, we copy other people. And we could do a three-hour podcast on my thoughts on that. I've been studying it like mad forever. Suffice it to say, we're very mimetic. When information cascades happen, they cause people to become very homogeneous about their ideas. We all have the same, we're all thinking the same thing. So it's been one of my goals to look for a quantitative signal. The place I think I'm going to find it is in these massive data sets that we've been retaining from social media, from news, from a variety of sources. And we're not trying to predict a black swan, by the way, because by its very definition, you can't predict a black swan. All we're looking for is confirmation that one has occurred. So this is a much more complex topic than you might think it is at first blush. And I love thinking about things like that. I love thinking about, oh, if I had my way, <laughs> right, what would I have? Well, I would have quantitative confirmations of these black swans. Because in my DNA, I'm such a quant. For example, during the real estate bubble, I was still at Bear Stearns. I was walking around Bear Stearns telling anyone who listened to me, short your house, short your house. But because I was such a quant, and because I only invest in things that I offer to the public, I didn't do anything about it. Patrick is 
extremely good at the very practical aspects of A, B, and C. He's very good at looking at understanding total addressable markets. The point being, we complement one another quite well because when we're looking at, say, I mentioned that O'Shaughnessy Family Partners has done venture investing since 07. A lot of those deals were sourced by Patrick, but then it was me doing the deep dive and asking the types of questions that might not naturally occur to Patrick. So I think that we're incredibly simpatico. We have never had a major disagreement. On minor disagreements, it depends on who it means more to, to be really honest. If I have a minor disagreement with Patrick, but he feels very passionately about something and I'm kind of meh, Patrick wins because he feels strongly about it. He expresses himself quite clearly and well to me, vice versa. So if we're in something or we're changing a model or whatever, one of the only things that I will never allow as the chairman and founder is we will never emotionally override any of our models ever. And I have a near 30-year track record of that. And we had a guy come from the old Lehman Brothers where he was a consultant and he was a consultant to quant asset managers. And he told us, and this was in 09, that fully 64% of the quant managers he covered overrode their models emotionally. That's not quant anymore. No, exactly. Exactly right. What I said was they have no track record. All of their previous track record was negated. Because the only way they got that past track record was having the emotional fortitude to, again, behavioral biases, right? So I wrote a funny thing for a friend of mine. It was like, he was writing about behavioral biases. And he was like, the question was, what is your biggest behavioral bias? And he did this for a lot of people. What is your biggest behavioral bias? And how did you solve it? And I wrote, my biggest behavioral bias is being a human being. I solved it by being a quant. (laughs) (laughs) Let me steer you in one direction here because I don't want to keep you from dinner. It's actually, it's getting later than we thought, but... I appreciate it. Well, this is fun. No, this is fun. I could talk to you for probably three hours. Torrents of wisdom. Your wife and daughters, how did they witness all of this? And was there any issues? Everything you describe, it's actually couldn't go any smoother, frankly. (laughs) But issues with your daughters and the paths that they took as your wife, you know, you're communicating with her as to the direction of the company and involving one, maybe at the exclusion of the other two, were there patterns of unfairness that you were worried about? How did you broach that with everybody from a communication standpoint? I was very explicit with my daughters when I asked them the question, are you interested in working for OSAP? Because if you are, you can, but here's the process that you're going to be put under just like your brother. And you might get mad at me because the people who are telling me what they think of you might not think you're the best. I don't know. I think you are, but I'm your dad. And I was very blessed with the good fortune of having two daughters who had zero interest in asset management. My middle daughter, Kate, has just published a marvelous middle grade fiction book which is doing very, very well. She's an author, already has a two-book deal. It looks like she's going to be very successful in her chosen career. My youngest daughter, Lael, is a stand-up comedian, which I love because, boy, if ever I needed to know any of my shortcomings, she points them out to me. But we also, when we formed O'Shaughnessy Family Partners, each of the children have an equal stake 
in O'Shaughnessy Family Partners. So none of them feel left out. If Patrick succeeds wildly as CEO, and ultimately when I'm shuffled off this mortal coil as chair and running the place, they will have benefited from that almost as equally with Patrick himself. He's going to do a little bit better, obviously, because he will potentially own a little more the securities or the private securities. But both of my daughters and my wife were like, you mean, okay, so we are equal partners in O'Shaughnessy Family Partners? Yes, you are. So that means we benefit if we get this great investment, we are pari passu? Yes, you are. And they were like, fantastic, (laughs) you know, this is great. We're not interested. Thank you for offering the opportunity to us, but we're just not interested. My wife actually worked with me for many years in the first iteration of Shaughnessy Capital Management. I have never taken a major decision without an in-depth discussion with her about it. I'm very lucky. She edited all my books, graduated summa cum laude in journalism, and is an enormously talented person in almost every regard. She has her own book coming out of New York street photography. So she is a professional street photographer in New York City. And Aperture, which is considered probably one of the best publishers for that genre, is publishing the book. So we have this happy coincidence where we all had really different interests, except for Patrick and me, which we had the deep interest in investing. But I love art. I'm an art collector. So I love looking and helping my wife with selecting photos that are going to go into the book or not. She solicits my opinion just the way, same way I solicit her opinion on things that we're doing as a sanity check, if nothing else. And so we have been extraordinarily blessed. Just to sort of push in, the level of communication that you have with your family strikes me as something it's many notches above what I hear on a frequent basis with many families. And so I I would put that down as one of the main sources of your success in communicating and sort of transmitting the values that you wanted to and creating those decision-making processes to push not only your company forward, but your family forward. You know, I feel good about that. It's something that I think is much more rare than you would think. And I'm sure we both have many cautionary tales that are around us on that front where people don't or financial conditions are hidden or what people want to do is hidden and they're not encouraged to sort of strike out on their own. The part I would sort of underscore for a lot of my listeners is that the importance of communication, how you do it, how you build the honesty around the process by which decisions are made and by which life events are sort of brought to the fore, that's huge. Because if you have that, if it goes uncommunicated, that's where the baggage starts piling up. And that's where it leads to conflict. And conflict leads to, in my opinion, the expensive, awful word litigation, where people try to resolve bruised feelings, either through money or elsewhere. It's just a difficult stop. I could not agree more. And I, again, listen, Fraser, I I won the cosmic lottery because I have had the wonderful good fortune of not only having these three great kids, I love all three of my in-laws or soon-to-be in-laws. And we were talking about it. I was at Patrick's for dinner the other night, and we were kind of looking at each other, and we both kind of said, do you realize how rare this is? And I do think Look, maybe it's because we're Irish. I don't know. We don't have a hard time having hard conversations. 
And we don't have a hard time being very honest in a way that never, ever strays into, I'm going to make my love for you conditional. I'm going to make the money you might receive from me conditional. I took all that out of my hands when I did O'Shaughnessy Family Partners. And I did it intentionally because I had seen, as people on No Doubt you've worked with and seen, I had seen so many parents using money as a weapon and using other tactics to get compliance. Look, I don't have a political home because if you went through all of my politics, you'd say, you're a left winger. Then then you heard the economic ones say, you're a right winger. <laughs> what I am is fiercely anti-authoritarian. And I've read the Tao all my life, the Tao Te Ching. I read the Stoics, and they really formed my character. And so if you understand ahead of time, ooh, that might be a problem if you try to use money as a weapon. Ooh, that might be a big problem if you withhold love and make it conditional. So we were just very, very lucky to have our kids turn out like that as well. Look, we encourage each other endlessly. I can't wait for, you know, <laughs> Missy's like, you're going to be the best salesman for my book ever. And you just not do it quite yet. And same with my daughter and my other daughter who is doing so well in stand-up comedy and Patrick. It's again, I think your insight is the takeaway here, though. I think if you want to learn anything from this, learn that real, honest communication in an ongoing manner solves a lot of problems before they can even occur. And that's one of the things that we found works very, very well. It's the way we run the company. It's the way we deal with our colleagues. We have a fairly diversified group of members. It's an LLC, so we don't call them shareholders. They're called members. But in our senior ranks, everyone is a principal, a member. And so we're trying to understand the best way to do these great things and, and have a lot of fun. That's important too, but also do well for our clients. I mean, at the end of the day, one of the nicest compliments I ever got in my life was when I was up in Canada and I gave a speech to a big group and it was clients. So it was customers of the bank. And two people came up to me afterwards. One said, I just wanted to say to you, you bought my cottage. They call cabins cottages up there. And another one said, my kids went through school at McGill, no debt because we were invested with you. I mean, you can make a huge difference in people's lives. Does that mean you're always going to do well? No. You got to take the times when you're going to do very poorly and get them to understand, yeah, we're underperforming. Here's why. Again, don't hide. One other rule we had for everyone at OSAM is you don't have to talk endlessly to clients when we're doing really, really well. You must talk endlessly to clients if we're doing really, really poorly. And it's back to communication. This is not rocket science, and yet it has certainly put us in a good place in the world. Well, let's tie it up there. I've diverted you from the evening here. One last fun question. Three people, living or dead, who do you have to dinner and where would you like to have dinner with those three? I would love to have dinner at my favorite restaurant in New York that is no longer open, Gotham Bar and Grill. And I would like to have Richard Feynman, one of my heroes, who worked on the Manhattan Project, was a 
unbelievable character. He was the guy who figured out the Challenger, why it exploded, and did so quite simply by taking the O-ring material and putting it in ice, and it dissolved. Great showman. Walt Whitman, the poet, madman, but visionary in terms of what he wrote. Gosh, I wonder what he'd be today. He'd probably be a rapper. (laughs) And Claude Shannon, person who's finally getting some attention from people. Without Claude Shannon, we're not doing this. Without Claude Shannon, there are no iPhones. He's the father of information theory. And he's the guy who named it Bit and Byte. He's also a tremendous character. There's a wonderful movie about him, I think on Amazon Prime or Netflix, called A Bit Player. And there's a great book about him that I have up on Twitter. And I couldn't believe that people didn't know everything about Claude Shannon because he invented the modern world. And yet people are just learning about him now. So those would be my three. That is a really interesting trifecta there. Jim, thank you very much for taking the time. Everyone on Twitter learns a lot from you, and hopefully my listeners are going to learn a little bit about what makes your successful business tick and some of the lessons really in communication, because I think you've done a lot there that I think a lot of people could take from. So appreciate it, and thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.